We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. All right, guys, let's be honest with each other. We don't have time for the pleasantries. Counting the Omer is weird. It is. It's just, it's this strange practice, and we do it. It's in the Torah. Uh, The way we do it may or may not be exactly related to how it is in the Torah, but we do it nevertheless. Uh, And my guess is that none of us really think all that much about why it is that we count the Omer. And if we think about it, we usually fall back on the rabbinic understanding of counting the Omer, uh, which is that it has something to do with connecting uh, Passover to Shavuot, that it has something to do with connecting the Exodus from Egypt to uh, to the revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai. But if you were to read about counting the Omer in the Torah portion today, you would find that it is not at all related to uh, the revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai. That is not mentioned in any way, shape, or form in connection with either counting the Omer or, uh, or the holiday of Shavuot itself. It is clear from the Torah that uh, that counting the Omer, along with the other holidays that are mentioned in this week's Torah portion, are about harvest, not history. So they're connected to the agricultural cycle and are sparsely connected to uh, any major historical event. Shavuot is never in the Torah connected to uh, the revelation at Mount Sinai. Passover, of course, is connected to the exodus from Egypt. Sukkot, in a couple of places, is connected to the experience of sojourning in the wilderness or maybe to the Mishkan, to the tabernacle. But Shavuot is not connected to the revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai. It's connected in some way to the agricultural cycle, to the harvest cycle. Now, I'm not a farmer. Most of you, I think, are not either. Uh, So understanding what these rituals were for being so deeply connected to the agricultural cycle and what meaning they might have is pretty elusive, I think, for those of us who are not in tune with the cycles of nature and the process of, of, uh, of reaping various kinds of harvests. So without getting too much into the weeds, so to speak, of the agricultural cycle, I wanted to just look at the ritual of uh, of the Omer and of counting the Omer as it appears in the Torah and offer uh, a couple of, of questions and a couple of thoughts about what this ritual is supposed to be about. So if you wanted to look along with me, you, you would find that uh, I, I'm on page 726 in the in the Eitz Chaim, chapter 23, uh, verse, uh, sorry, 725 is really where, where we begin. 725 is uh, chapter 23, verse 9. Uh, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving to you and you reap its harvest, 
You shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest, that's the Omer, to the priest. He shall elevate the sheaf before the Lord for acceptance in your behalf. That is what's known as Omer Hatznufa. He elevates this sheaf of, uh, of barley. Uh, the priest shall elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day that you elevate the sheaf, you shall offer as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb of the first year without blemish. The grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in. A gift of pleasing odor to the Lord and the libation of it with it shall be of wine, a quarter of a heen. Until that very day, until you have brought the offering of your God, you shall eat no bread or parched grain or fresh ears. It is a law for all time throughout the ages in all your settlements." And from the day on which you bring the sheaf of elevation offering, the day after the Sabbath, you shall count off seven weeks. They must be complete. You must count until the day after the seventh week, 50 days. Then you shall bring an offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your settlements two loaves of bread as an elevation offering. Each shall be made of two-tenths of a measure of choice flour, baked after leavening, as first fruits to the Lord. With the bread you shall present as burnt offerings to the Lord, seven yearling lambs without blemish, one bull of the herd, and two rams. With their grain offerings and libations, a gift of pleasing odor to the Lord. You shall also offer one he-goat as a purification offering, and two yearling lambs as a sacrifice of well-being. The priest shall elevate these, the two lambs, together with the bread of first fruits, as an elevation offering before the Lord. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you shall hold a celebration. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall not work at your occupations. This is a law for all time in all your settlements throughout the ages. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, the Lord, am your God. So that is the entire context of the process of counting the Omer. And a couple of things I think are noteworthy about that ritual. The first is that from the very beginning of the passage, it's tied in some way to the land, to inheriting the land of Israel, to being in the land. It's strange, in a sense, that we continue counting the Omer even in the diaspora, recognizing that it is, at least according to the Torah, so intimately connected with uh, the land itself. So that is one question I want us to hold in our thoughts is, what's the land got to do with it? The second thing that I think is uh, of note in this passage is the, is the theme of elevation, that the Omer is lifted up, that each of the uh, offerings in this process are, are to be henifu. Uh, uh, They're supposed to be lifted up by the priest. Lifting up is a major theme throughout. Even the final offerings, the bread that's brought at the culmination of this counting period at the festival, the, the lambs that are brought at the culmination of this period, they're all lifted up. So what's lifting up got to do with it? That's another question. The third question is, uh, what's the difference between the grain offering that we bring at the beginning of the period, that Omer, and the grain offering that we bring at the end of the period, which is a bread offering, a mincha chadasha, an offering of new grain or a new grain offering? What's the 
connection between those two grain offerings? What's the purpose of those different kinds of grain offerings? The major, one of the major questions is what's the counting got to do with it? Why do we count between that first grain offering and the last one? And then finally, what does the law of Peah and Leket and Shichacha, the law that we are supposed to leave the corners of our fields ungleaned, and that we are supposed to leave any crops that we harvest that fall from our bundles uh, on, the, uh, on the ground for poor people and strangers and orphans and widows to come and collect, what does that have to do with this ritual and with this holiday? And it is, I think, worth noting, by the way, that a word that we would associate with this ritual, with this holiday, is not here, which is Shavuot. That name is not here. I say that really as an, an aside. The term Shavuot comes later in Jewish history, um, but I just think it's, it's, uh, it's noteworthy. Okay, so those are the kind of the questions that I think are worth us thinking about and worth asking here. I'm not going to necessarily answer all of them, but here's what I think is going on. Rabbi Harold Schulweis, who was a, uh, a leading conservative rabbi of the 20th century, died, I think, just two years ago, or maybe even less than that, uh, was uh, the se longtime senior rabbi of Valley Beth Shalom in, uh, in, in the Los Angeles area. Uh, he developed an idea called predicate theology. Predicate theology is, uh, for those grammar scholars in the room, Predicate theology suggests that our understanding of God is kind of warped because we think of God as a subject, as a noun. But in truth, there's very little that we can really know or understand about God the subject, God the noun, the what we might call a personal God. The whole idea of theology is a, is a notion of, of understanding a, a personal God. But Shulwey says it's impossible to conceptualize something that's so profoundly other than the human experience, which is perhaps why so many people have trouble, maybe a billion people around the world, identify as atheists. They have trouble conceptualizing something that's so beyond human experience, and, and so it's, it, it seems reasonable to, to just argue that such an entity doesn't even exist. And so he says, well, what if we didn't think about God as a subject? What if we thought about God as a predicate? In other words, we don't talk about God, but we talk about Godding, or we talk about godliness. So what would be the manifestations, what would we identify as the manifestations of God in the world? In a certain sense, uh, I, I know uh, my friend David Holland is probably thinking this in his head, he's a Kabbalah scholar. This sounds Kabbalistic in a way, because the Kabbalist said a similar thing, said that, uh, that, that the God of the philosophers, the God the subject, is ansof, is uh, infinite, unknowable. And the way we can relate to or understand God is through the sfirot, through the manifestations of God in the lower realms. So kindness, justice, beauty. These are the manifestations of God in the lower realms. So similarly, Shulwai said, what if we understand God not as a subject, but as a predicate, as the manifestations and actions of divinity, of godliness in our world? But if that's true, 
then there is a distinction, a separation between the, uh, uh, how God actually comes into the world. And what Shulwai says is that the role of human beings is to functionally be God's hands. God doesn't have hands. God is an entity unlike human experience. God is an entity unlike animals or things that we know. God actually, the God of philosophy, God the subject, being so other, actually can't act. An infinite God can't act. And so that God relies on creation to act on that God's behalf. We are, in a sense, the hands of God. We are the feet of God. We are the eyes of God. We are the heart of God within creation. God relies on us to act. And so uh, you've heard me, I think, from time to time talk about the concept of imitatio dei, that we are supposed to emulate God in the world. And there are rabbinic traditions that evoke that idea. But I don't think what Schulweis is talking about is imitatio dei, of emulating God. He's actually talking about being God, or doing God, doing God's work. A slightly different thing, a related thing, but a slightly different thing. That our role as human beings is to functionally bring God into the world, to do godly things in the world. God relies on us to do that. And so one of the most perplexing blessings in our tradition is, I think, much more easily understood if we adopt Schulweis's predicate theology. What's the most intriguing blessing that we have? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And now we say it, we sing it, kids know it, but we don't ever stop to think about usually that prayer and how strange it is. Because God doesn't bring forth bread from the earth. There's no bread plant. There's no bread tree, right? That makes sense. Blessed are you, Lord God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the tree. Got it. There's an apple. That apple didn't get made by me. It came from the tree. God made the fruit of the tree. Praise are you, Lord God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the earth. That makes sense. But, who brings forth bread from the earth, doesn't make any sense. Thank God for the grain, but we take the grain. We make the flour. We mix the flour with water. We add the yeast. We knead it into dough. We let it rise. We bake it. We turn it into bread. But if you adopt predicate theology, then you recognize that our act of turning wheat to flour to dough to bread is actually God's work. God acting through us and us acting in God's behalf so that when we say hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, that God brought forth the bread 
from the earth, in a sense, we are telling the truth. That God relied on us to take that wheat, to turn it into flour, to make it into dough, and then to make it into bread. We did that on God's behalf and with God's help. God worked through us and we did it for God. And so when we say that God brought forth bread from the earth, we are telling the truth. This is, I think, what's going on in the ritual of counting the Omer. It starts with bringing a sheaf of barley, unmade, unformed, uh, unprocessed grain, the first grain of the harvest. That's what we bring to the temple as the Omer, the Omer at Shnufah, and the priest elevates it, the priest lifts it up to say that this is the raw material that came forth from the earth. And then at the end of the cycle, we make bread and we bring bread and the priest lifts up the bread and says, as if to say, this is the culmination of the process of bringing forth the grain from the earth is turning it into something useful of being a partner with God, of being an agent of God, in some senses of being the hands of God in turning that raw material into something nourishing, something beautiful, something sustaining. And the priest lifts it up, lifting up as a theme, as I said, throughout this whole ritual. Why lifting up? Because lifting up is an act of demonstrating human agency. There's human agency involved in taking that grain from the earth. We're lifting it up. There's human agency involved in turning that bread into flour. We lift it up. There's human agency in turning that flour into dough. We lift it up. And God requires us to lift it up. Otherwise, it can't turn from something that is raw material into something that is nourishing and useful material for human beings. God relies on us to do that. There's a partnership here that's being expressed between us and God. And maybe that's why there's counting between them. Because what we're saying is that it takes time and work and effort to be a partner with God. It says, Sheva Shabbatot Tumimot Tiena. That these should be perfect weeks. That these should be complete weeks. And some of the Midrashim say about that phrase that they should be complete weeks or perfect weeks. It's not that they should be full. They should, we should count them as full weeks. That may be the obvious understanding. But rather, that they should be weeks in which we strive to do as much as we can in the service of God. Where we try to be full and complete in our partnership with God. That's what tmimot perhaps means in the counting of the weeks, but we count the weeks, we count the days as a way of saying that it takes time and work to be partners with God in this world, culminating in the end in the transformation of grain into bread. And I think also that's why it's the whole ritual is predicated on entry into the land. A profound midrash says, 
ki tavo el aretz, me'eze zechut zachu Yisrael lirash et aretz. By what merit did the children of Israel merit to inherit the land of Israel? Heve omer bischut mitzvat haomer. We say through the merit of the mitzvah of the omer. Why is it that the Midrash, that the rabbis thought that the reason we merited to inherit the land of Israel was because on account of the Omer? Because what does it mean to inherit the land of Israel? Inheriting the land of Israel is not just saying, oh, thank you so much, God, for giving us this land. Now we get to live in it. Inheriting the land of Israel involves conquering the land of Israel. It involves creating a society worthy of continuing to live in the land of Israel. It involves the actions and the continual actions of human agency and human endeavor in order to remain in the land of Israel, to to hold on to it, to stay it, to be worthy of it. We don't just sit there comfortable and happy. We actually have to do something to keep it. We Not only in the similar language that we talked about for marriage, where you have to continually recommit oneself to marriage each and every day. The same is true with inheriting the land of Israel. Each day is a new day to inherit the land of Israel. We have to recommit ourselves to the work of holding it and earning it each and every day. And so the whole notion of inheriting the land is predicated on counting the Omer because counting the Omer reminds us of the divine partnership that we have, not only God's action and God's intention, but human effort in partnership with God. And I think also that's why the whole unit is concluded with the commandment about the corners of our field and the forgotten sheaf. That everything is connected to our role in sustaining the poor and the hungry. We read in the Psalms, that God opens up God's hand and God's favor sustains all the living. But we can look around in our world and say and realize that that isn't true. That God isn't feeding all who are hungry. There are plenty of people who are hungry and do not seem to be fed. And so what the ritual of Omer reminds us why that command of feeding the hungry is included in it is to say that we must not wait for God to feed the hungry. God is waiting for us to be God's agents, to be God's hands and feet and conscience and participate in the act of feeding the hungry. So when we say, that God opens God's hand and with favor sustains all the, all the living, we remember that we are God's hands. Counting the Omer may seem strange and arcane and just an exercise in simple arithmetic. But it's not strange. It's not arcane if we heed the essential lesson that I think it's trying to teach, which is that God works in our world, but only 
with and through us. And God is relying on us each day, each moment, to take the world that we've inherited and turn it into something useful, nourishing, kind, and beautiful. Shabbat Shalom.